You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, I'm Emily Littlejohn. I'm a general paediatrician and today I'm speaking with Bridget Jordan, who's an Associate Professor of Social Work at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you, Emily. So this is the first in a series of four podcasts on infant mental health. Uh, Bridget, can you tell us a bit about the aims of this podcast series? So the hope with this podcast series is that we can give people the knowledge, the skills, the frameworks to try and protect the mental health of patients. Um, So that really involves thinking about how to prevent emotional harms that might come from the impacts of dealing with illness and with the treatments. And the way healthcare professionals can do that is by changing the way they deliver care, by identifying patients who do have mental health problems and assisting parents to support the mental health of their children. And our focus is going to be on the zero to five age group. Okay, excellent. So I guess let's start with with an obvious question then. What does the term infant mental health actually mean? Well, it's about the child's emotional functioning and their emotional and social development. And that really covers three domains. And the first is their ability to form close relationships and secure relationships. The second is to experience and manage a full range of emotions without being overwhelmed or frightened by them. And the third is about being able to explore the environment and learn, which is also kind of connected to the security of their attachment relationship. And people often talk about this in terms of, um, you know, important foundations for the future. But infant mental health is also concerned with the fact that babies, like everybody else, have emotional reactions to life events, to what's going on. They uh, have the same range of feelings as anyone else. They can be happy, they can be sad, they can be anxious. And they're also kind of building memories, like experiences have ongoing impacts for them. So they remember tiny little things and they can remember dreams dramatic, stressful events as well. Bridget, what will the focus of this first discussion be? So today we'll focus on how babies learn to organise their emotions and behaviour, how hospital can disrupt these processes and what health professionals can do to minimise the negative impacts of hospital. So you mentioned um, before that babies have memories and often people think that you know babies won't remember medical interventions and they're often quite reassured by this belief. Uh, What do you mean by babies having memories? Well, you know, if you think about it, babies are born ready to learn about themselves and the world. And if they couldn't form memories, they wouldn't learn anything about anything, really. Mm. Um, So from the beginning, they've got sophisticated abilities to to discriminate between what are familiar experiences and what are novel experiences. And um, they're continuously sort of recognising what they've seen before and collating that together and kind of bundling that together to be, if you like, a building block of memory. You know, think mm. about something like the first time a baby has a bath. That is um, like a completely new experience mm. and maybe quite alarming for them. The second time, uh, it could still be alarming. Um, the third time, they might think, oh, here they go again. You know, mm. by the 10th time, it's kind of an episode that's got a beginning and it's got an end. So all these experiences that babies have in the first days and weeks of life, they're kind of clumping together and then they kind of become recognised as uh, experiences. And I think of that as the building blocks of memory. Right. So they're not like blank slates, they're actively processing their experience of the world and what's happening to them. They've also got control over the input they get from the world. 
Because they can, unless we do things to kind of uh, interfere with this, um, so healthy babies in the community, they're able to open their eyes, close their eyes, which means they can modulate the visual input, they can turn their head away, they can look closer. So they've got ways of kind of titrating the amount of input that comes in mm. to meet their uh, well, their thresholds, really, what they can tolerate, what's too much. And so they start to regulate sort of being under and overstimulated. So they're doing a lot more, I guess, than, than we realise, aren't they? Um, so looking at, I suppose, those intentional behaviours of, of the babies, why, why do you think that is important? Can you give us, I guess, some examples of how babies are learning about their internal world? Yeah, well, the I think um, it's important because then we kind of get to understand the baby's preferences. Mm. You know, as I said, their thresholds for being under or overstimulated. Um, and... I think in the earliest days of weeks, babies are really trying to sort out, if you like, their insides. So um, feeling hungry, so recognising that that's a familiar thing that happens, and then the care that helps them feel better. So you're hungry, you have a feed, then your tummy feels full, you feel happy. Um, you're sad and a bit lonely, you cry, your mum comes, she gives you a cuddle, you feel better. You're tired, you have a sleep, uh, then you feel better. So they're kind of starting to connect their experience of their insides. These experiences become less frightening because they become familiar and then the babies kind of join the dots about, well, what's the care that helps them to feel better? But this really depends on the fine-tuned support of parents and that's much more easily done at home when parents are there sort of 24-7. And so parents being close by, looking at the baby's cues, looking at the baby's reactions to um, what they do, I mean, it's almost, some people refer to it as a dance, really. And it's like the baby and the parent kind of works it out between the two of them, um, how to help the baby feel supported and how to help the baby, well, really modulate these emotional responses. So I guess, um, you know, would you call that intuitive parenting? And and what does that term mean? Yeah, that's... um, actually a term that has been used by some researchers and uh, it's referred to like that because it can feel quite automatic for parents when things are going well. They're not consciously thinking, now I must adjust what I do to help my baby. Mm. It's just a bit of the back and forth. Yeah, it feels more natural. Mm. Um, But it's not helicopter parenting. It's quite different from helicopter parenting. And there's a researcher from uh, Boston called Ed Tronic and he talks about match mismatch and repair Mm. and so the parent kind of meets the baby almost perfectly you know in terms of the baby needs I don't know an adjustment in how you hold them or something and then the baby will kind of grizzle and say no don't like it and then you adjust again and so that repair bit is as important as the kind of disrupted bit and Mm. this is kind of microsecond happening in microseconds Um, and there's actually a phrase about too good parenting. So the parent who kind of gets in too quickly to make sure the baby never has a chance to express their preference or their emotions, well, that's actually not very helpful to the baby Mm. because by this match, mismatch and repair, then the baby's learning they've got some agency. That if they say, I don't like it, and the grown-up kind of responds in a favourable way to them, then that helps them feel kind of a sense of confidence Mm. um, and helps them shape the world as well. They're not just being impacted on. Right. Interesting. 
Um, and you mentioned earlier that um, infant mental health was also about the ability to form close and secure relationships. Um, how does that relate to, I guess, the concept of attachment? Yeah, so um, the definition of attachment or the attachment relationship really is the enduring emotional tie that a child has with adult caregivers. Um, And an attachment figure is someone who's responsible for comforting, supporting, nurturing the child. It's not just any old grown-up in their life. So it's somebody who has that kind of responsibility. They provide physical and emotional care. They have to spend a significant and continuous amount of time with the child and have an emotional investment in the child. And uh, attachment relationships are you know, we've kind of evolved, um, mm. the attachment behaviours have evolved. Um, babies are hardwired to seek close comfort. Um, they do that even in very stressful and um, uh, sort of disturbed family relationships. They'll do their best to make a connection with the adults who are available mm. to provide the care. Um, and it's sort of instinctual behaviour. It's not learnt behaviour. And the behaviours that we refer to as attachment behaviours are clinging, crying, following, which can include uh, following uh, with gaze, and smiling. So they're all the behaviours that um, keep the baby and the grown-up close. Right. So what does a good attachment relationship look like? Yes, we tend to think in terms, well, you know, the, the research um, and the evidence is about uh, the important distinction between, being between secure attachment relationships and insecure attachment relationships. Right. So sometimes people kind of say, oh, is that a weak attachment or strong attachment? But that's not the right kind of language. Mm. Uh, and attachment is a description of a dyad, not a child. So it's possible for a child to have a secure attachment relationship with their dad and an insecure relationship with their mum because of what it's what goes on between the two of them that shapes whether the child has a sense of security with the um, that particular adult. Right. Okay. So how can parents promote a secure attachment relationship then? So the critical thing about a secure attachment relationship is that the caregiver is physically and emotionally available when the child needs them. So that leaves the child free to actually approach the caregiver or go and explore the environment. Um, And when the child feels unwell or under threat, then they're going to scuttle closer to their grown-up. But when things are going well for them and when there's no threat in the environment, then they're free to go and explore the environment. Um, So I I visually kind of think of it like a seesaw. You can't have high-level attachment behaviours and high-level exploration behaviours happening at the same time. You know, they're they're kind of inversely proportional, Mm. if you like. So for the child to feel that the caregiver is emotionally available and reliably available, that is kind of built on the parent providing sensitive and responsive caregiving. So that means a prompt uh, response to distress and then something that actually helps soothe the child, not escalate their distress. Uh, But it's not just about responding to distress. It's also about having enjoyable times, being interested in the child, being invested in them, responding positively when the child tries to connect with you, when they show a wish to play. Uh, So it's that quality of um, uh, having the child in mind and recognising the child has a mind and uh, being invested in having this two-way communication with them.
So it's, you know, it's important and quite a big topic. Is there anywhere else we can find out more about attachment? It is a big topic and uh, I think one of the best resources is a um, program in the United States called Circle of Security. That program is now available in Australia as well. Uh, But they have a great website and um, the website has resources designed for parents as well as professionals. And there's a really neat four-minute animated video that really captures the concept of attachment relationships um, as they uh, apply to babies, toddlers and older children. And I think that would be a really good place to, uh, like you had limited time, that's a great Mm. place to go um, to get some more information and get your head around the concept more. Great. Okay, so we've talked about how healthy babies, how they learn about their, you know, organising their emotions and their behaviours and about the development of secure attachment relationships. I guess now let's talk about how this process might be affected by a baby needing to be in hospital. So I guess think about those babies admitted to the neonatal unit. They might be unwell or born with something that requires surgery. This means, you know, they're hospitalised in those important first few weeks of life. How does, how does that impact? I think it has an enormous in- impact because hospital is a very strange environment for babies. Mm. It's radically different from the environment developed by uh, evolution, if you like. Yes. You know, nowhere, no society has evolved to have a kind of caregiving environment that looks like a hospital. So therefore, I think it must be a very highly stressful environment. Mm. And we have evidence of that as well. So I guess, you know, it's important that we shouldn't really be thinking that the baby's spending a lot of time, you know, sedated or sleeping in hospital and is is mostly oblivious to these stressful surroundings. Yes, and and even if um, they do have sometimes, you know, where they are um, not conscious, you know, Mm. because they're sedated, they still have this... um, uh, task. Well, in a way, I think of it as the babies are multitasking. So just because they're sick in hospital doesn't mean that they don't have to do all that learning that babies at home have to do, mm. all the learning about organising emotions and behaviour. So the babies have got two big tasks and they're doing this in a really suboptimal and often impinging, so very stressful environment. And uh, one of the ways this environment is compromised is because sometimes there is separation uh, from the mother and mum can't be there the whole time. But also the parents' emotional responses might get in the way of them being consistently, uh, sensitively and reliably available. So parents Mm -hmm. can have acute stress responses. They might be terrified the baby will die. Uh, They might be just trying to process the trauma of the diagnosis, the admission, and mm. that will make their mind sometimes be on the baby and sometimes just processing their emotion. And think back to what we talked about earlier where it's that kind of match-mismatch repair, that very fine-tuned uh, interaction that scaffolds the baby's learning to manage their emotions and behaviour. And so that's a big ask under these um, circumstances. Mm. But but also th- there are things like, um, you know, parents often feel disempowered or they feel like the nurses are the experts. So it's hard for them to kind of arrive at uh, a position where they feel like they're important for their baby as well. Which is really important for us to, to realise, isn't it? 
And I guess that's an interesting idea about the, the multitasking. Can you tell us a bit more about what they're doing? Well, um, if you think about, uh, we were talking about how babies learn to recognise their what's going on in their insides and then make a connection with the care that is going to help them feel better. And I think that can get very disrupted and very muddled in the hospital context. So, um, you know, they might have discomfort and it doesn't get better because mm. they're unwell. Something like feeding, like think of a cardiac baby, they feed, instead of the end of the feed, they feel better, they actually feel exhausted. Mm. They haven't fed quite enough, so they don't have that experience of a full tummy. They might have to feed multiple times. Uh, So then, you know, all of life is about feeding. So it doesn't kind of get clustered into feeding and play and other things. Uh, Tube feeding regimes can cut across that feeling of hunger and so feeding something that happens oblivious to what's going on inside their body. Mm. Um, they, they might be coping with pain and discomfort, so they don't get that nice kind of steady state. Their body might be experienced as very unreliable, so then it's hard for them to uh, make predictions and to get a sense of, oh, I've sorted out this link between this and the link between that. Uh I also think medication um, with altered perceptions means they would have a different perception of their body, maybe a different perception of what's coming in from the environment, including, you know, what it feels like to be held or patted or undressed or, I mean, Mm. very subtle things, but it is these subtle things that make up the baby's world, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, That all sounds pretty overwhelming, doesn't it, for them? Yes, and I haven't finished. Yeah. (laughs) There's more. (laughs) Because I'm thinking, you know, the baby who has restricted mobility or they've got splints, well, then it's much harder for them to signal what they want. They don't have that sense of agency of Mm. being able to express it's not right or I don't like it or I want to change position or... um, So they're kind of a bit trapped. Um, And then... And that's all before we really start doing procedures to them Mm. and then we do procedures to them often in a way that is completely unpredictable from the baby's point of view and uh, so I can see how that could lead to constant state of alert and alarm you Mm. know are they going to come and get me in a minute and do something to me Mm. so I guess the big question then you know what can we do to help the baby you know how can we provide a more supportive environment for you know for the baby and also to support the parents through this so it does sound overwhelming but I've actually got quite a long list. So that makes me think that there are quite a few things that could be done. What's best is to aim for parents being in hospital 24-7. Now, that might sound like a burden, Mm. but uh, the parents, when they had the baby, intended to be with their newborn baby 24-7. That separation is a big stress for the baby. uh, And... uh, you know, it's very important in terms of helping the baby with this multitasking mm. that the parents are available. And so I think it's our responsibility as a hospital to be as creative as we can in facilitating this. But also in explaining to parents um, because they might feel like, oh, the baby just has to recover from the medical illness. Mm. But I think being really um, explicit and having a conversation about we don't want this experience to get in the way of what your baby would normally be learning and their usual development and your role in that. So Mm. we want to be thinking about that alongside the physical recovery of your baby. So there's things like skin-to-skin contact, parental touch that are really important and they really support that intuitive parenting process we were talking about earlier, Mm. but that might not be possible. So then, you know, parents might need 
sort of explicit reassurance that eye contact, touching the baby, the sound of their voice is going to be reassuring to the baby. And a reminder that the baby recognises their voice from in utero. So that's an immediate familiar connection, Mm. even if they can't see the parents or the parents can't hold them. So, Bridget, you're saying that, you know, parental presence is really important for the babies. Does that mean we shouldn't be saying, you know, for what is usually the mum, you know, go and have a rest, go and have some time out. It's important to have your own mental health and and look after yourself. Should we not be saying that? Well, I think you have to think very carefully before you say that because Mm. attachment behaviours aren't just inside the baby, they're inside the mum as well. Mm. And most mothers of newborns do not want to step away from their baby or only want to for a very limited amount of time. So... Um, I would be asking the mum, does it feel like that would be helpful for you? And if she says no, then I would listen to her because that's her attachment behaviours. She's not going to sleep. If (laughs) she wants to be with her baby and you tell her to go and have sleep and self-care, all she's going to do is lie awake in bed and worry about the baby. Mm. So um, if she does need a break, then, you know, making sure dad can stay or grandma, like someone she really trusts and who she might have given the baby to for half an hour or an hour at home. Mm. So, you know, thinking about recreating what would happen at home because mothers of newborns do not just go off. No, that's true, uh, In usual life. Yeah. Like that's yeah. not what they do. They're not primed to do that. Yeah. So it's kind of odd. So w- what we have to do is really make it as easy as possible for her to be there. Yeah, right. So j- trying to be like home, I think that's really good advice, isn't it? And I guess in that sense too, what about navigating some of these challenges if there's siblings in the picture like there would be at home? Yes. So um. I think, again, that we should do our best to facilitate the siblings being there because that was the family expectation that, Mm. you know, we would have a two-year-old and a baby and we would learn to juggle it all and we'd help the two-year-old cope with their jealous feelings. And and I think people are sometimes a bit frightened about siblings that be disruptive and, you know, often they are disruptive. But the reason they're disruptive, inverted commas, is because they're anxious. So it's really important to speak with the parents about how they can prepare the toddler for coming to visit the newborn baby. And so drawing pictures, just using simple things like sticky tape and tissues on a teddy bear at home to sort of show what the baby will look like. Giving a really simple explanation like the new baby's heart didn't grow properly and so the doctors are doing an operation to help it grow properly and the baby's in hospital getting better and that means it's got special tubes to help its breathing and so and mm. it won't be forever and you know so some explanations like that are really important mm. um but then kind of rallying the troops as well uh in the family any resources to help mum and dad manage with having two children at the hospital Mm. and then thinking about well what's a toddler's usual routine what's a routine we want for the baby and um, how can we kind of support that and again that's maybe what might have happened at home granny might have come and looked after the newborn baby while mum took the toddler to the park for half an hour Mm. so just thinking Mm. in those terms and of course that will be very difficult for families from the country or socially isolated families but that's where i think we should be using our volunteers and our ward grannies mm. you know to be the extra pair of hands not just for unaccompanied babies but mm. we should grow that resource so that people have a backstop and so that you can do the caring for two people because again that's mm. what happens in the community that's really good advice isn't it and is there anything else we could do i guess in terms of interacting with the baby or for the baby's environment 
so I think from the beginning, I'd be talking to the parents about the kind of routine they would have done with their baby if their baby had been at home and try mm. and follow that as much as possible. So mm. kind of trying to build that in. And even though it couldn't be followed from the beginning, as the baby recovers and as the baby uh, matures in age and development, mm. then you can kind of adjust to that. So that's going to be much make the transition home much easier, but mm. also help with this emotional and behavioural learning. Um, minimising impingement by the environment, mm. but not making the environment boring for the baby. Right. Like you can get rid of all impingement and then it's just deadly boring. And so, you know, simple things like um, having a teddy or a doll's face in the line of vision of the baby. Mm. So the baby can look and kind of lock on and that becomes a kind of consistent presence. Maybe a photo of mum and dad and, you know, any older children again. Mm. Um, now, of course, this is going to be more important as the baby gets older. Um, but the baby will recognise the faces. Uh, saying hello and goodbye to the baby. So if you're the health professional, you know, we are giants. Don't just loom in. Yeah. So, <laughs> we forget, you know, don't we? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, treat the baby as a person. Say hello. The baby will get to know you over time. You know, you will be like the next door neighbour would have been mm. because you're such a regular kind of presence. So kind of recognise and honour that. Mm. Say hello. Say goodbye. Um, let the baby check you out. So, you know, if you're a registrar, you're new to the rotation, the baby's been in hospital three months, you know, don't just bowl in. Like yeah. stand at the door, gradually approach the cot, let the parents introduce you, have chats before you start touching the baby. So things we would do with a toddler usually, we should be mm. doing the same thing with babies. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, uh, I think if there's any way of announcing kind of the beginning and the end of a procedure, that's very helpful because it stops the baby having to be alert and alarmed the whole time. Um, and clustering obs and procedures. Mm. So long as the baby doesn't become overwhelmed, like that is such a big uh, kind of impingement on the baby, mm. but just thinking about how we can cluster. So it's not just kind of intermittent, random, really. I mean, the word that came into my mind was assaults on the baby mm. throughout the day from their point of view, which means they can never then get into a kind of more rested state because they're on high alert the whole time. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Okay, so I guess we've talked about lots of ways that we can minimise distress for the babies, you know, by understanding how their behaviour can impact on their experiences. How else can we support parents who might, you know, really be struggling with their baby being in hospital? So I th think some of the things we've touched on, but a critical thing is parents often feel helpless. Mm. So it's important to say your role is really important. We honour your role and we will support you to fulfil your usual role with your baby. So that's the first thing. Um, and having a discussion about their critical role in this kind of multitasking juggle for the baby mm. and um, their role in the emotional and behavioural regulation. But also... Uh, any sign you notice of the baby looking for the parent or being different when the parent's not there and then being different when the parent returns. Because mm. when the parent's with their baby, they don't see attachment behaviours because the baby doesn't have to show them attachment behaviours because the right. parent's there. Yeah. So um, it's it's only so they don't get to see what it's like for the baby when they walk away and you might see the baby look for them or grizzle a bit or change position. or mm. So just pointing out those little things can uh, sort of help consolidate that sense for parents and build their sense of con confidence. Um, now, some parents 
just may not feel a close bond with the baby. Mm. Um, and that might be because there was a prenatal diagnosis or it might be because of the trauma after the baby's born. And um, that will then have an impact on how sen- sensitive and contingent they will be because it'll be harder for them to imagine the baby's experience or to just be able to read the baby's feedback. So finding a way to ask um mothers and fathers if they feel as connected as they expected to be with the baby you rather than just the words kind of are you bonded you know yeah, sort of like yeah. you know how do you feel it's going do you feel like it's harder to connect mm. uh, do you feel like it's getting back on track just having that conversation which is something we find hard I think is health professionals to have that you know to know the yeah. words to use with that well, because it's so easy to sound like you're blaming or mm, um, and right. we don't want to get into those binary splits. So um, using language that recognises that it's a strange environment, it's a strange setup to be building this relationship and we may have got in the way and, you know, is that your feeling? Um, and then if it is for the parents... Then and and of course you know parents with um, the trauma symptoms or anxiety or depression mm. that is often associated with trouble connecting with the baby or they might feel connected but they're not doing the behaviours to help the baby feel connected right. so they've got a gush right. of love but they're not doing that fine tuned meeting the baby at the baby's level mm. and so the baby doesn't have the experience of being connected. And in those circumstances, uh, you could refer to social work or mm-hmm. to the infant mental health team. And mm-hmm. some units are now appointing psychologists. So we do have resources mm-hmm. to help those parents who are struggling more and for whom all these environmental changes won't be enough to help them kind of feel connected again to the baby. Absolutely. Okay, some really good advice there. Thank you, Bridget. So I guess you know, what I've taken away from this discussion today um, is that firstly, babies in hospital are still babies. They're, yes. you know, they're learning to be in the world, how to organise their emotions and their behaviours. And at the same time, they're also learning to cope with the distress of being unwell um, and painful procedures and all the challenges of being in hospital. Um, and secondly, the babies are not just blank slates, are they? They, you know, they no. notice everything. So it's really important for us as health professionals to be aware of that when interacting with them. Um, and finally, there are lots of ideas um, that you've been through today about how we can support the, the parent-child relationship whilst baby's in hospital and, you know, lots of things that we really should be aware of and, and helping families with. Thank you so much for today, Bridget. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Emily. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.